You are listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by two very special guests for a unique conversation. So our first guest, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, is, as you know, he's a globally renowned surgeon, and he's the professor and director of minimally invasive surgical research at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Joined by Dr. Ramirez, with Dr. Ramirez is Gabriella or Gabby Benjamin, and she is a fitness and finance superstar. So between working as a portfolio manager at BlackRock and enjoying tennis, yoga, free diving, and kite surfing, Gabby is an overcomer extraordinaire. So we are having this unique conversation with Gabby and Dr. Ramirez about patient-physician relationships in the journey of overcoming. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Gabby and Dr. Ramirez. Grab your coffee. I have mine. And let's get talking to uh, both of them and understand this unique relationship and how it helps in the journey of overcoming. As I always say, please share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all this great information they're about to share with us. So with that, a warm welcome to you both, Gabby and Dr. Ramirez, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Such an honor to have you with us. Thank you Thank so you. much, uh, Runzi. It's uh, really a pleasure to being here. And of course, I'm always uh, honored to be in the same uh, spotlight as uh, Gabby. She's a, she's a superstar and someone who I find incredibly inspirational. So uh, thank you for allowing us to have this discussion. Absolutely. So, you know, I have so many questions for both of you. So I will just start with um, Gabby that, you know, you and I briefly talked before and you said that uh, with uh, with your diagnosis, you had no symptoms whatsoever. So tell us about that and how was your ovarian cancer then eventually diagnosed? Yeah, so it was, um, you know, really interesting because I, I really like coming into it. I had no symptoms, but I did a, um, I was looking into egg freezing. So I did a, a an ultrasound and um, the day after I felt strong pain. So it was one day of pain after the ultrasound. And I thought, you know, my tubes had turned and we're like investigating, but I have a pretty high tolerance for pain. So it was alarming. Um, I'm lucky enough to have uh, doctors in the family. My sister's a doctor and, you know, she said, take this. It didn't get better. Took a second medication. And then she knew she, she just, you know, she said, go to the hospital. You're, you're in a lot of pain. And I got to the hospital and I had to take multiple rounds of morphine. And then they started investigating the cause. And that's what led to the diagnosis. Thank you, Gabby. So um, Dr. Ramirez, in situations like these where patients are so young and mostly asymptomatic, right? So uh, until she got to the point where she had to be taken in. So it can be very difficult to to detect this disease. So uh, what guidance would you have for our primary care physicians or even the OBGYNs um, who are more uh, primarily you know, first gate patient focused, right? To be uh, more vigilant in detecting these kinds of, um, these types of cases earlier. 
Yeah, I, um, obviously, it's a, a really important and relevant question. And, uh, and as you mentioned, um, this disease, ovarian cancer, is a disease that often will manifest at very advanced stages, uh, particularly because patients either have uh, minimal symptoms or they have symptoms that often are attributed to something else uh, and the diagnosis is delayed. So then particularly for younger patients where uh, generally this is not the age groups that uh, we see routinely with uh, advanced ovarian cancer, for those patients, it can be even uh, more challenging to, to come to that diagnosis. But I think you know, as, uh, as we have uh, discussed previously, I think it's important for patients to uh, advocate for themselves. Patients know themselves incredibly well. And obviously the patients will know when something's not right and, and when something is persistent to, uh, to pursue that further uh, step in investigation, uh, that be it, you know, any imaging studies, any blood tests, um, but to certainly not to dismiss those symptoms because ultimately then there could be a potential delay in that diagnosis. And then for the practitioners, it's always obviously to, to be alert to when those patients and particularly young patients start, start developing these symptoms that are not typical for, for that age group. Exactly. It's, it's easy to dismiss, but that's where we need to be more vigilant than, um, you know, uh, we usually are. So thank you for sharing that. So Gabby, after you were diagnosed and prior to your surgery, um, I just wanted to ask you if you were counseled on fertility preservation or any other concerns that, for the matter, that you may have had uh, before, uh, prior to your surgery. Can you please share with us? Yeah. Um, so with the cancer I had, and because it was hormone sensitive, I was actually not eligible for, for preservation at that point. Um, luckily, I had done one round of egg freeze um, a year prior. So I had some eggs preserved, but I was not eligible at the point of my diagnosis, given the advanced stage of the disease and the sensitivity to the hormones that you need to take for um, so uh, thank you, um, uh, Gabby, for uh, for sharing. So Dr. Ramirez, we have there have been several cases where we have um, you know heard from patients that, and this is again you know talking about the younger um, childbearing age patients that when they are wheeled into the OR and they wake up to the fact that you know they can never be moms again, where you know there was the surgical intervention happened before even before they had a chance to kind of understand what was going on. Um, with their with their treatments, so you have so much experience, and you're considered one of the you know global experts in the field of fertility preservation in young women um, with uh, with early stage um, cancers, but especially cervical cancer. Tell us how that translates into ovarian cancer, or any guidance that you may have for patients in the childbearing age that get diagnosed. Uh, what kind of um, counseling should they have and what kind of information should they have before they elect or decide for surgeries? Yeah, so particularly for, for younger patients uh, with any type of gynecologic cancer, um, that's always a concern, obviously, uh, with regards to their, uh, their future fertility and their ability to, um, to obviously bear their own children. Um, and we uh, are very fortunate. We have a, a reproductive endocrinologist that's also um, working within our department. So young patients are often referred to, uh, to that um, physician so that she can counsel them as to what are the multiple different options that, that the patients might have. Um, you know, certainly, obviously, in, in, in the case of Gabby, she, she was already also pursuing uh, those avenues uh, already. 
Um, I think it's also uh, important to to understand that for each type of cancer, the options may be very different. Uh, and certainly, for example, for cervical cancer, we have made great strides in terms of um, maintaining fertility for those patients with early stage disease. For uterine cancer, um, certainly is much more restrictive, uh, and and there are still candidates who may be. Um, potentially uh, individuals that may preserve their uterus for future fertility, but overwhelmingly, typically the recommendation is to, to have a, a hysterectomy. Um, and then of course, obviously for ovarian cancer, traditionally uh, patients have, uh, of course, obviously if the, if, the, if the tumors are rising in the ovaries, you wanna remove the primary source of disease. Uh, oftentimes, and, you know, depending on the stage of the patient, then the recommendation is to also remove the uterus as well. Um, so I think it's also uh, very, very important to, to have those discussions with patients with regards to what are their potential options with regards to fertility. And, and again, I mean, the, the, the options of, you know, will you carry your own child? Uh, will there be uh, harvesting of, of eggs for, for future pregnancy? So all of those things, I think, are important to discuss with a, uh, with a reproductive endocrinologist. I think also uh, the timeliness is, is very important because a lot of times, obviously, when patients are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, particularly advanced ovarian cancer, uh, generally one needs to uh, address uh, the, 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 the cancer fairly soon after the diagnosis. Um, so it's important to, to have all of that uh, information and, and all of that multidisciplinary approach uh, facilitated for, for that patient. Thank you so much. I mean, it uh, you know boils down to, as you said, conversation and communication before, uh, prior to making any surgical decisions. Where even if uh, you know in Gabby's case there was not too much uh, option given to her, but in 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 even those situations, you know, if you are talked to prior to the surgery, the patient feels empowered, even if there is no choice at the end of the day. So, thank you both for sharing that. And so, um, Gabby, going back to you in terms of for your recovery after surgery. So you mentioned that you went home in just a few hours, if I remember that correctly. So that seems to be, you know, very significant for a big surgery like this. I mean, tell us about your experience and tell us how that worked out for you. Yeah. So um, I have uh, Dr. Ramirez to thank for that. Um, in terms of coming into my surgery, um, given where, you know, my tumor was actually located or uh, outside the the reproductive organs in my pelvic, um, in my sacrum, actually. So it was expected um, that I was going to have open surgery, um, but I did. I was uh, did chemotherapy before, so I actually did six rounds of chemotherapy, and I was lucky enough to react um, very well in terms of uh, you know obviously felt awful, but did, did its job. And um, the day before when I met with Dr. Ramirez, um, you know he said. You know, I've been speaking to the looking at your images and discussing your case. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do it laparoscopy. And, and that for me, he knew that was important. You know, the big scar coming across, not for the scar itself, but mainly for the constant reminder. So I think, you know, he knew and he said, I'm going to take a chance here. Um, not a chance, a calculated, well thought out risk. Definitely not a chance because he doesn't take chances. But he said, I'm a true finance person, right? Finance expert, <laughs> calculated hands. I love that. <laughs> and um, he, you know, he analyzed and he said, I'm going to prepare you in terms of anesthesia um, for a, an open surgery. 
in terms, but, you know, I'm going to try to do a laparoscopy. So when I actually woke up, I, I didn't know which surgery I had gotten. And um, I'm waking up and Dr. Ramirez happened to be in the room checking up on me. And he just looked at me. He said, you did great, did great. And I, I looked down and I could kind of tell, I was like, so happy. I was still like very groggy from, but, you know, I, I think his calculated risk really, uh, it made, made such a difference for me. So, you know, what I say is find that professional that you could trust in. You know, you're literally trusting your life on them and, and, and find one that's, you know, that's up to date, that's willing to take calculated risks, that is willing to consider, you know, for him, it probably would just be easier to do an open surgery, but he knew what was best for me. And it ended up that it worked out uh, well doing um, the more less, more less invasive method. So I really have to thank him for that. Thank you, Gabby, for sharing this positive experience. Um, so Dr. Ramirez, as the uh, director of the Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education, you are the expert in this uh, field, right? Um, that to a large extent helps improve patients' quality of life. So uh, tell us about the any exciting advances that have been made in the surgical field that allows, what are, what are some of the things that are happening that allows for such quick recovery for patients? Not only, this is not just, to me, it's just not physical. It's also that emotional, as Gabby says, she was so happy to have been done and out like in few hours. That's significant. So tell us, tell us a little more about this. Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, Gabby's a great example of uh, how we have evolved in, in the field. And I think, you know, when you look back at perhaps uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, most patients with advanced ovarian cancer, regardless of where the disease was, um, had an open surgery, an attempt at a tumor reductive surgery. Um, and oftentimes when that was the approach, there was a significant amount of disease left behind which we know obviously is detrimental to, to those patients. So the field has evolved from uh, that sort of like all or none uh, approach. And, uh, and many patients are now undergoing what is called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which basically is chemotherapy prior to the surgery. And that's the idea that um, certainly perhaps not to completely eliminate all of the disease by just the chemotherapy, but also to reduce the volume of, uh, of, uh, of disease. Uh, so many patients who are given the neoadjuvant chemotherapy have a very favorable response where you need to consider the potential possibility of a, of a minimally invasive approach versus the open approach. I should clarify that, you know, still the standard is the open approach, but I think that with this increasing evidence that we're able to perform the procedure safely uh, with, uh, with minimally invasive surgery, then um, this is becoming uh, more of a, a routine and a standard in, in our field. Um, we actually do have a trial, and, and certainly I'd be happy to discuss that in a little bit, but we also have a trial where we're actually now randomizing patients to open surgery versus minimally invasive surgery in the setting of the interval uh, side of reduction, if you will. Um, in addition to that, there are other strategies that have been implemented um, where uh, we have what is known as the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Program. And uh, through this program, the patients are given a number of um, interventions preoperatively, intraoperatively, and postoperatively to get the patients uh, to recover much quicker. So some of these things are typically patients waking up with less nausea, less vomiting, less pain. Uh, and then therefore, obviously, patients are able to get back to their functional daily activities much sooner. That's wonderful. And just a quick question as you were speaking, is this something that 
that is everywhere in all hospitals of the country, I would think not, right? It's probably a limited institutions that are offering this or where are we in terms of? Yes, that, that is correct. And, and you know, as I, as I mentioned uh, before, be, you know, because the standard, regardless of whether you do surgery up front or you do surgery after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the standard has been and still is open surgery. So the overwhelming majority of institutions will perform these procedures by open, the open approach. Um, certainly now there's increasing um, evidence that the minimally invasive approach is possible. Uh, but even so, there are many who basically believe that, well, you know, the, the, the standard recommendation by the NCCN guidelines is still open surgery. So therefore, that's, how, that's what patients are going to get. Uh, but fortunately, there are a number of select institutions where this option is being discussed. And of course, obviously, patients are informed that this is not the traditional approach, but if the patient may potentially, as a single individual, as we did with Gabby, we, we looked at her imaging and we said, you know, I think it would be a shame to do this major surgery and potentially uh, know that we have been, would have been able to do a minimally invasive. Um, so, so that's the case. If, if there is a level of expertise, then, uh, then um, that is what is being offered to patients. But um, as I mentioned, there is an ongoing prospective study that is looking at this to hopefully make this the standard approach. And we'll talk about that in a little bit because I'm interested to know um, about the clinical trials that you just mentioned. But in, uh, before that, I just wanted to ask you, Gabby, um, you know, life after cancer. So tell us, tell us, you know, about your life after cancer and treatment and what have you. So I know that you're doing a lot of things, but tell, tell me, were there any things that you had to stop doing after the diagnosis or just in general, how did you, um, you know, get into your second act after the treatment? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the way obviously the diagnosis devastating young, I wanted to be a mother, I was looking to be a mother. And, you know, the, the first realization is that bearing your old child is not the only way to be a mother. So I'm very much looking forward to being a mother in whatever shape form that comes after, whether it's using the, some eggs I froze or adopting, I'm very open to that. So I, I think that's a really important distinction. You could still be a mother after ovarian cancer. You can't bear children, but you could be a mother. So I think it's a very important um, mental barrier to overcome. And then from then on, you know, it stayed for disease. I was, it was, you know, I, the first six months was just battle, chemotherapy, getting at it, but I, I didn't let that dominate my life. I continued to live and I really, my doctors. And um, that's why I like Dr. Ramirez so much because, you know, the standard, well, when you ask the question, can I do this? It's usually no. Um, and Dr. Ramirez took a different approach. And I think he said, as long as you're feeling good and you're not in pain, yes. And um, so I did, I continued to play tennis in my, um, between my chemotherapies, I continued to do my yoga. And um, I was very fortunate and it really helped me continue to live. And you really, you know, the post chemo days are really tough. Um, so you really appreciate when you come off it and every little thing, just sitting there in Shavasana and the yoga and just being like, wow, I, I feel good. This is, this is good. It's not all bad. Like I'm going to get better. And I think it really helped me maintain my, my sanity, um, was to just continue to do it. And then I think also that helped my surgery and post-surgery was I stayed in, in shape. I, sh I stayed in shape. I took um, the month, I worked throughout all chemotherapy, but I took the month off surgery before because I wanted to be in the best physical shape. I wanted to be sleeping right. I wanted to be eating right. 
I started doing a plank challenge where all my friends around the world did a minute of plank a day. Dr. Ramirez owes me a plank. <laughs> um, and I went into that surgery room, just literally did a plank right before my surgery. I, I felt really good. So, you know, it, it really helped that. And then as soon as I could, you know, I, I was fortunate that I didn't have a lot of pain. I just took some Tylenol and I flew home three days after and then I continued to live. And then the one though, which was diving, which was exactly what became a yes. As soon as that became a yes, I started doing that, free diving, going, you know, four minutes, whatever it is, and continue to live. With the, what's changed in my second act is just the appreciation. I've, I've, I appreciate life so much more. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, um, that Gabby. And as as Dr. Ramirez, as um, she was saying that you made it easy for her in being so um, collaborative in this whole journey with her and guiding her through the right answers and everything. So um, in terms of her staging, she was at, she was uh, diagnosed at an advanced stage, right? So um, so and the, and you talked a little bit about how it determined that she was a right candidate for um, the the kind of surgery that you did with her. So generally speaking, I'm assuming that this is a multidisciplinary approach that you guys take when you take on a patient. Um, so what kind of questions do you ask as a team or when you consider treatment approaches for a specific patient, um, you know, based on the staging and where they are with the cancer diagnosis? Yes, well, thank you. And again, I mean, as, as, I, as I listen to Gabby, you can't help but just be so, so motivated and inspired. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I've been practicing the, the plank. So I, <laughs> next, next time I see you, I think that I, <laughs> we'll be able to do one together. <laughs> You'll probably be doing it a lot longer than me. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, as you mentioned, I think it's important for all of your patients uh, who join and the listeners uh, to the podcast to to really um, be proactive in terms of uh, asking about whether their case is being evaluated uh, in, a, in a multidisciplinary approach. In other words, that is not just, well, you're diagnosed with presumed ovarian cancer, and therefore we're going to go to surgery and we're going to try to do our best and we'll see what happens there. Um, you know, certainly uh, for us, we, uh, we evaluate the patient's imaging studies. We have discussions with uh, consultants. Um, you know, certainly sometimes even as in Gabby's case, consultants in other specialties as well, depending on, on where the tumor is, uh, is located. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it's really very important to put, you know, everyone's uh, heads together. Uh, we obviously we have a, a consultation with a radiologist where they're telling us exactly where are all the sites of disease, because we know that if we're going to implement a surgical approach, that we need to be sure that we have the highest chance of removing all of the disease that's there. And, and generally now, if you don't feel that you're gonna be able to do that, then uh, the, the standard recommendation is for, for chemotherapy first. And then even actually after chemotherapy, when we are considering that interval surgery, there's still that multidisciplinary discussion again to see, well, is it the right time now? Or do we give more chemotherapy and come back later? Uh, what is the likelihood that we'll be able to, to achieve this goal? And this is something that happens routinely. You know, I often find myself, even in clinic, as I'm seeing patients calling other consultants and asking them to review films with me, um, you know, talking to hepatobiliary surgeons, talking to colorectal surgeons, sometimes talking to neurosurgeons, as in uh, Gabby's case. Um, so all of this is really very important for, for the patients 
to be aware that this this should be the standard in their care. And that that really this is empowering information. Thank you for sharing, um, uh, Dr. Ramirez. So, um, Gabby, so you know, in terms of you said communication with the doctor is very important earlier in one of your statements. So if I were to ask you, what are the top five questions that you think a patient should ask of their surgeon um, when diagnosed with ovarian cancer, um, how, what would you say? What would be your top five? I think it's, you know, it's a, I did a lot of research. I'm in finance and I, uh, I research a lot of companies. So I, I, I took this approach of like researching all the, you know, I consulted not just Anderson, I consulted Sloan, I consulted UCSF. I did my chemotherapy at University of Miami. So I think uh, before you even get to the doctor to ask the questions, I think you have to do the research. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in doing the research can be often hard because um, unfortunately the statistics for ovarian cancer don't look um, great. But, you know, I think Dr. Ramirez kind of, when we spoke, you know, I, I obviously asked him about statistics and, and, you know, a lot of doctors like to dive that question. He did it. And, but he said, you know, Gabby, it, 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 you got to understand that that's the average, like, you know, and, and I always grew up uh, thinking that, you know, um, I, I could beat the average. It, it was kind of a motto, like I can beat the average. I'm going to be the exception if I can. And I think that really helped. And I think he also helps saying those are also older statistics, right? Like it takes a long time for the research to come through, you know, care for ovarian cancer is very different than five years ago. So don't be discouraged by the statistics, but know them and discuss them with your doctors. Like, I think it was important, you know, for me to see what my options were. Okay. You know, and, and I got kind of got put because of how advanced it was in replacement, you know, I got put in the, probably the worst scenarios. And then like over time, as I did treatment and actually my case turned. So you know, don't take it as a, as a death sentence. A lot of people, oh my God, ovarian cancer, that's not how I took it at all. But I understood. So it's important to understand my options. Um, what was the best treatment? Consult different. And then also, it was really important for me to be, the reason I chose Dr. Ramirez, among other things, is also the volume he sees. To just be at a cancer center that sees so much volume, it's really important. So um, I think it was it was that. It's to, to be able to also ask whatever questions you need. In my case, it was, okay, what are the possible outcomes? Um, you know, how, how often are you doing this? Uh, you know, can, you know, what are the statistics? Um, and, um, you know, my, you know, what's going to be my life, like, uh, you know, very active person. So that was important to me. And um, like Dr. Amir said, my, the, the location of my cancer, my sacrum, we had to bring a neurosurgeon into the surgery, but luckily, you know, the chemotherapy did its job and he didn't have to remove anything, but there was you know, some care around that. And, you know, if we didn't remove everything, what would be the next steps? So just really understanding the chronology and that person is somebody you have to trust, right? So that trust between doctor patient is really important to develop. And uh, I would add to what your list is saying just finally, because it's Dr. Rimmer is that too, right? I mean, that is the most important reason why you chose him <laughs> because he's Dr. Ramirez. I mean, so... Um, so, you know, uh, Dr. Ramirez, if I had to ask you the same question, like, you know, th- that I asked Gabby uh, in, in a s- slightly different way that, you know, what are the top five questions that a surgeon uh, should ask of their patient, you know, um, and their choices when diagnosed with ovarian cancer? Uh, what would you, how would you guide us through that? Yeah. And, and I think, again, I mean, uh, Gabby articulates it so well. Uh, and, you know, she spoke about the, the trust. And I think that, uh, one needs to be as a gynecologic oncologist, obviously empathetic and, and to, to understand that 
this patient is going through some very challenging times because obviously when when uh, when a patient is diagnosed with this disease uh, and they uh, inform themselves and start hearing about all the potential outcomes, which often uh, many times what what you know the information that that uh, that they see is not very favorable. One needs to understand that we have a role and a responsibility to be able to um, outline all of the you know potential. Uh, strategies for treatment, uh, what are some of the anticipated uh, responses, uh, what are some of the things that they may experience as they go through this, uh, through this journey. Um, I think it's also very important to explain to, to the patient uh, what, it, what is our role um, and, and that we are uh, available uh, for all of their questions because obviously this is something that uh, for many patients is extremely important to hear from their doctor as to what, what, are, what is the reality uh, with regards to some of the information that they gather, uh, either from friends, family, internet, other physicians, um, and, 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 and to, to provide an environment where the patient feels comfortable um, asking those questions and, and where the patient feels comfortable that uh, the doctor is going to be understanding that some of those questions may be repetitive questions and it's okay because obviously, um, you know, certainly I see it. I see it in, in many patients that as we're going through all of this information, it's a, it's a lot of not only just objectively taking in this information, but also going through the emotions of everything that is being said to, to that patient. So I think it, it's very important to try to find uh, an individual um, that they feel comfortable um, asking those questions, that they feel comfortable relaying to them what is going through their minds. And, uh, and then certainly, again, uh, someone that they feel is competent in doing what they're supposed to be doing with regards to, to the care um, for, of that patient. And, and lastly, I, I think I, I also take some time to always ask about, you know, that patient's goals, um, ultimate, you know, what their wishes are, uh, what are their long-term plans, uh, what is the family dynamics, because I think that that also gives, uh, as a physician, a perspective of this person as a unique individual, uh, where, their, where their lives are. And then, you know, of course, obviously, um, when speaking to someone like Gabby, you realize how important to her is quality of life. Uh, and that's also very, very important. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. So, um, you know, Dr. Ramirez, I wanted to ask you about patient care in, in, we talked about this briefly, but in terms of location or the kind of hospital that they're being treated at, maybe their ethnic background or their cultural limitations, uh, you know, patient care is non-linear, right? It is not uh, uniform across the boards. For so, for someone who who has such vast experience in patient care on an international scale, um, what do you think are the primary gaps in care today, and how can we? I know this is a really broad question, but you know, if you had to delve a couple minutes on this, um, how would you address this gap? Um, you know. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really very important question. And, and there are two, two elements to that. One is that we have data in our field in gynecologic oncology that has shown that when patients are actually cared for by a specialist in gynecologic oncology, that their outcomes are going to be superior as opposed to a patient being cared by a general surgeon or an obstetrician gynecologist. And, and many times we see patients who come in for a consultation where they say, well, you know, I have my surgery by my general gynecologist because, 
he or she was a nice person and I known them for a long time and they said they can do this. And obviously many times that was not the right surgery for that patient. Um, so it is important to make sure that the patient understand they need to go to a gynecologic oncologist. The other is that extra step, you know, as Gabby, uh, you know, when Gabby came to see me, I, I knew that she had already consulted with multiple other specialists in, in the field. And um, I was glad that my, my recommendation was very similar to them because a, I respect many of them that she had gone to see. So, um, but, but to actually also uh, not be afraid to say, well, I want to explore different options. What are the different recommendations? And also particularly for somebody like her who's young, uh, for her to, to ask those questions and, and, and really look for what will be the, the best strategy for her individually as a patient. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Gabby, you know, just uh, staying on the um, topic of genetic testing for a, for a second, um, what would you say to our community of overcomers and, you know, in the importance to, to share the importance of genetic testing for, because as we know, statistically speaking, the recommendation is that 100% of ovarian cancer patients should have genetic testing, but we are, we are definitely not there today. So uh, what would you say in terms of your message to other fellow overcomers in terms of the um, importance of genetic testing? Yeah, um, I'm science. I'm a, I work in finance, but I'm an engineer and very science based. So, a hundred percent. It's important not only for you. I mean, you already have it. So, but there are some impacts in terms of treatment. But it's not just for you. It was important for my sisters, right? I have two sisters. It was important for them to know their risk factor. I ended up being Barker negative. But I think the truth is, we haven't decoded all of them yet. Um, you know, the genetic mutations are still being decoded, and it's an evolution. Like it's a evolving. So, um, you know, I'm happy to, you know, if it's recommended to do it again, as mutations come out, you know, they have um, my, my blood sample. Um, um, yeah, I, you know, I, it was, you know, I did the, the, the blood work, um, got to genetic testing. I was fortunate and unfortunate, fortunate that my, the disease was gone by the time of surgery, which is great news, but unfortunate that they couldn't do genetic testing on the actual um, sample. Um, so, you know, I didn't get genetic testing on the actual tumor, but um, they do have my genetic testing and it was, you know, it didn't add anything to my, um, to my particular treatment because I was negative, but I think it's still vital for you to have that. Absolutely. And Dr. Ramirez, what would be your, um, your two cents on that? On the yeah, I, mean, I, I think Gabby said it perfectly well. I think, uh, you know, in the past it was for the purposes of obviously informing and uh, taking different strategies uh, on approach to surveillance for daughters or sisters. But now actually for the patient themselves, it's important to have that genetic testing because this may be a driver as to what additional treatment the patient may get in terms of adjuvant therapy. So I think she said it very well. And most institutions now routinely do it as, uh, as part of their uh, routine care for patients with uh, advanced ovarian cancer. And you know, Dr. Ramirez, you you pointed this uh, you know very important fact. But uh, I was actually reading an article somewhere where they were saying um, that uh, majority of the times, you know, in the community hospitals, uh, you know, as as much as eighty percent, I think I read somewhere that uh, the recommendation is not made to do genetic testing. In fact, through our ever overcare program, when we speak with our patients, they tell us so many times that they were not talked to about genetic testing. So this is again 
again, something um, that the patients need to be empowered with that information to even if they're not being told to, they need to go and ask this question of their physicians or their healthcare team as to what, you know, the, 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 the genetic testing a component of it and how they should be tested. So thank you. Yeah, and then that. actually, yeah, to, to our previous point, and that's why it's been shown that if you are diagnosed with an ovarian cancer to go to a specialized center, to go to a tertiary cancer center so that you will get the appropriate care and evaluation. So important. Um, so on the topic of clinical trials, Gabby, um, I know that you're, uh, you haven't signed up for a clinical trial yet, but if you were to be, um, you know, if you're given this opportunity, would you sign up for a clinical trial? Um, why or why not? Sure. So um, actually, when I got my diagnosis, I was living in Brazil and kind of moving to the US and I had the option of um, treating there and then Brazil's got, you know, very good doctors or treating, you know, in the US and, and immediate uh, it was a simple choice for me. Um, this is even before I spoke to the doctors and, and that Dr. Ramirez was, where are the trials happening? And it's in the US. So if this goes bad, that's where I want to be. Um, and I would 100% enroll in a trial I'm eligible for. Um, I, I'm a strong believer that, you know, uh, the, the science, you know, the, the, the safety is the way things are carried out by these institutions. There's, um, you know, a certain amount, the benefit definitely outweighs any risks. Um, and I think it, you know, science evolves so quickly. So why not be at the forefront of it? So I 100% support if any trial becomes eligible, even for maintenance, I, I'd be, I'd sign up for it. I'd be the first person out there. Um, and I'm a, yeah, I'm a big believer in it. Love that. Thank you for sharing. And so, um, Dr. Ramirez, um, how would you encourage, I, I think Gabby said it beautifully, but how would you encourage our overcomers to learn and understand more about clinical trials and are back to the conversation that we were having a little earlier. Are there any trials that you're running right now that you would like to talk about or anything in the horizon that's um, interesting um, for the patients and the overcomers yeah. to know? Yeah, I think it's, it's very uh, important, obviously, for, for patients to have that discussion with their physician every time that they come to a point of making a decision about treatment. Um, so anytime that there is evidence of recurrence of disease or at the time of recurrence, anytime there's evidence of progression of disease uh, where you need to make a, a decision regarding which strategy to, to, to take, um, you know, certainly, of course, obviously, there's always the standard treatments. Um, but often now with targeted therapy, there may be some very good options for patients in clinical trials. And therefore, if the patient has an alteration, a mutation, or, or something that uh, we have uh, an ideal drug for, then that patient should consider those options. So I think it's also very important to, at any point, when making that, uh, that, that decision, to ask your doctor and say, am I a candidate for a clinical trial? And what is the specifics uh, of that trial so that they can learn uh, and potentially make a decision about that particular trial? Here at Anderson, obviously, we, we have uh, numerous trials, uh, particularly for ovarian cancer in therapeutics. So obviously, there's a lot of focus in, in driving that, moving the, the, the bar with regards to uh, therapeutics and targeted therapy. Um, but also in surgery. I mean, as I mentioned previously, there's a trial now where we are randomizing patients who have a, a good response after neoadjuvant chemotherapy to either open surgery or minimally invasive surgery. And then hopefully that'll be a standard 
of care trial, uh, where if uh, minimally invasive surgery shows that the approach is safe and uh, oncologically doesn't uh, adversely impact the outcome of the patient, that hopefully that'll be the standard. But uh, patients can also um, evaluate what trials are available, not only at their institution, but in other institutions through a website called clinicaltrials.gov. Um, so that also gives you a perspective of where uh, are trials that may be fitting for that patient nationally. Um, and then also looking at the website for your home institution and determining whether there are trials there that you may be a candidate for. Thank you. And, and, the, and the trial that you mentioned, uh, is that uh, ongoing? Is it recruiting or is it all fully enrolled? Yes, and, um... yes. That, that trial is ongoing and it's recruiting now at Anderson and at uh, nine other institutions nationally and internationally. And when is it um, scheduled to be read out? Well, you know, right now we're in the, we just started it and um, we're in the first phase of the trial and the first phase will be for 100 patients. We have accrued a total of 40 patients. And then the second phase, then that'll be several hundred patients with many, many more institutions. And so if, uh, if any of our overcomers are interested to learn, because it sounds really interesting and fascinating um, and, uh, you know, somewhat like if other patients could have the experience that Gabby had, uh, you know, home in five hours, that would be wonderful. So where should they look up this information on the Anderson website or the clinical trials or both? Yes, it is in both. That's correct. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. So, um, since we last chatted uh, here at uh, one of our other episodes of Connect Over Coffee, Dr. Ramirez, has anything changed in the surgery protocol um, for ovarian cancer? Any new advancements uh, you would like to share or have we covered everything through our conversation today? Yeah, no, I think that a couple of things. I think, you know, as I mentioned uh, before, there's been a lot more emphasis on the neoadjuvant chemotherapy where we feel that we're able to perform a much more um, efficient surgery um, where we were able to resect uh, all or most of the tumor at interval cell reduction after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So that definitely has been a trend that has been changing. Also, the, the, this new trial incorporating minimally invasive surgery as an option for an evaluation of, uh, of patients um, in, in the interval setting. In addition to that, there's also an ongoing trial that we uh, recently started where after patients complete their initial chemotherapy regimens, the patients undergo a laparoscopy with multiple biopsies to determine if the patients have really truly responded to chemotherapy or is just an imaging study that is negative, but that the patient still has disease. So for those patients who still have microscopic disease, then they're offered additional adjuvant treatment in the form of different uh, clinical trials um, so that's also very, very important. And then now uh, trials and development, particularly surgical, where um, there's the proposal of use of fluorescent dyes to help the surgeon uh, determine uh, where they missed potentially microscopic disease that was not visible with the naked eye and then potentially resect that as well. So that one, I read about that a few days ago. So um, is this already happening or is it something that's to come? Um, no, that, that, that one is open in our institution as well. Okay, wonderful. That's That was a really, I was reading that it was fascinating to see how science, like Gabby said, it's progressing every day and we are inching towards 
possibly a cure, who knows, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. So um, Gabby, this is a more of an activist question for you. So if you could change the face of healthcare, not just in America, but around the world, I mean, uh, when it comes to ovarian cancer, what would you do? How would you change it? Yeah, I, I think Dr. Ramirez kind of uh, alluded to this, but I think one of the most important things I think in the beginning is, is the recognizing the doctors recognizing what the patient's going through, right? These doctors are seeing, I don't know, 40 patients a day that have the same diagnosis. So to them, it's routine. But for that person, it's the most impactful event probably in their lifetime. So I think taking one second, one sentence to say, I am sorry you're going through this is sufficient to give the patient some comfort. And, you know, to, to say that, to, for the patient to feel that the doctor understands, you're not just a number, you're a person. I think so. I think that communication, which is so simple, and I'm not sure why they don't teach this enough in medical schools. And I was discussing this. It's you know you need to make medicine human again. It's not just robots and advantage the you know advances. And uh, Dr. Maris and I always talk about this: is that the approach and the mental state of the patient also you know although not clinically proven, I am sure has impact on the outcome and on you know the ability to to cope with this disease. So I think you know humanity making it more human again is, is very important. Um, I think, you know, MD Anderson, I think did a fantastic job. I mean, the not sleeping in the hospital and, you know, you recover much faster if you're home. That's the truth. You feel better and, you know, you're not being woken up at night. And, and you know, I, I, it was, I was, you know, so happy to go home and, and to be about my life. Um, so I think that's, you know, that the protocol that they're doing there to have a faster recovery is really something I'm, I'm a big advocate for. Um, and I, I think it's information, right? Um, it's information. And Dr. Murray said it's a lot of information. So what I recommended is I always had uh, my sisters as my support group and one sister always taking notes because it was too much to process. So you often have to hear the information multiple times and it's nice to refer. So if you could take somebody, whoever is a caretaker, whoever is gonna be your primary caretaker, to just take notes or if you ask the doctor, record so you can play it back because it's a lot to process. Um, so, and, and there's a lot of information out there. So I think, you know, making sure, uh, you know, there's the, 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 the information is out there and just being a little bit more human is really important. Simple solutions. And I was just going to say that this is such a candid, uh, you know, response. I really thank you for this. And, and also, you know, I always say that uh, it can it, be it cancer or something else. A disease is not just clinical, right? It's emotional, spiritual, mental, as well as physical. So you have to treat the patient both, you know, mentally and Physically, it's not just the clinical aspect, like you said. I mean, a few words, a few, you know, some support, some emotional, um, you know, like support is so important in this whole process, which many of us forget. And we, we just kind of focus on the clinical aspect of cancer, but we, we should really treat the patient as a whole because 50% is mental and 50% in physical is physical and overall health. That's the way I look at it. So um, thank you for sharing that. This is very profound and very, very powerful. Thank you. Um, 
So, um, Gabby, another question for you, and you talked about the uh, doctor-patient relationship and how important it is in this whole journey of overcoming. Um, so tell us a little bit more about, you know, how it has helped you, your relationship with Dr. Ramirez um, overcome, and what would, you, what would you say for our fellow overcomers listening or someone yet to be diagnosed and, you know, trying to find that right doctor, um, you know, because chemistries need to match and expectations need Need to match what is what is your guidance and what are some of the things they should be looking for because this is an important relationship absolutely i was i was very fortunate that i was able to tap into you know the world's best organizations literally and um you know the, the sloan ucsf miami anderson um i knew that every all everybody i spoke to had the technical skills but it was that second aspect, the, the trust and the bonding with the doctor that made all the difference. Dr. Ramirez is incredibly responsive. He, you know, he, you know, you feel that he hears you and he answers you even like small questions, like, you know, whatever it is, he will answer. And he's also very poor thinking, I think. And he understands like different patients, different perspective. And you know, there was, yeah, I was always pushing him. I was like, you know, can I do this? And, you know, he would be like, okay, how's this pain? Okay, this. And and so I, for me, that was very important. I, I couldn't have a doctor. It was just could be like, no, Gabby, you can't play tennis or you can't run the 14 kilometer mountain run that you did before your surgery. Like I, I, that would have destroyed me. So I just needed, it's not like he was irresponsible saying yes to everything, but, you know, even my sister who's a doctor, she's a little more cautious, you know, she's like, Oh, I don't think you should do that. I was like, well, Dr. Ramirez said it's fine. <laughs> that drove a, a little bit of wedge between them, but um, I was really happy to have that trust. So find that trust because it really will make a, a, and it's different for everybody, right? So I think that's important to find your person. You, you're you're raising the bar, Dr. Ramirez, for the other <laughs> other physicians out there. That's fantastic. It's so it's so nice to hear. I mean, this this you know this beautiful relationship that you to share and the relationship based on trust and support and understanding and you know respecting each one another, each other. It's just beautiful. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so Dr. Ramirez, asking you the same question. You know, Gabby mentioned her from her perspective. What are some of the key things to develop this relationship from your perspective, what would you say um, that helps, you know, build this bond between a patient and a physician? Yeah. And again, I mean, uh, as always, uh, Gabby uh, says it so, so well. Um, you know, I think absolutely uh, when, I, when I look at my um, position as a, as a gynecologic oncologist, I, I see this as a position of, of a privilege. I am being given a privilege to take care of, uh, of someone as they're going through something that has to be incredibly difficult. And every day I'm encouraged by and inspired by the, the amazing strength that, that our patients uh, show. And, you know, Gabby's a great example of that, uh, that obviously she's faced this obstacle in her life and, and she's really has turned this into an element that is an element of motivation for excelling in everything else around her and, and really uh, bringing this, this just this, this br very bright uh, perspective and, and this amazing personality uh, that serves nothing else, but also obviously to encourage every, everyone that comes across her to say, wow, what an amazing individual uh, and what an amazing person. Um, so I think as a physician, uh, I feel very lucky to have 
um, her trust and 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 to be able to provide her care. Uh, and I know I know that you know patients are going through an incredibly difficult time. My mother uh, was also a cancer patient, so I, I I understand that this this is an incredibly challenging time, and and that's why you know I tell Gabby, and Gabby has my cell number, and I tell her either text me or call me for whatever you need, um, because I know that, you know, there are going to be times either during the week or during the weekend, whenever that there's something that's going to come up. And I want her to feel comfortable and say, I can reach out to him and he's going to answer me. Um, so I think that that's, that's exemplifies what I consider it's an ideal relationship with, with your patient. And again, never forgetting that this is a privilege and an honor to care for somebody like her. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramirez. This is such a beautiful conversation. I could go on for the next 20 hours, but <laughs> um, just in closing, as we wrap up this conversation, there's a question for you both, uh, for all our listeners and our you know, overcomers watching. And I, I, we like to call them overcomers because we feel like the word survivor is good, but it gives too much power back to cancer. So when we say overcomer, the power stays with, with the person who's overcoming it. So that's why we call them our overcomers. So uh, for all of them listening, the family members listening and watching, what would be your message of overcoming to, to our um, followers? Gabby, we'll start with you. Well, first of all, I'm sorry that you or somebody that you know is going through this. It's, it's a tough battle, but it's a winnable battle. I think. And even if it's, you know, doesn't mean, um, you know, necessarily cure for everybody, it could be living, continue to live for as long as we have, right? One certainty in life is that there eventually will become death. So I think it's important in, in, in either case, whether you, you're able to 100% overcome or if you're just overcoming and, and, and living um, the way you want to live. So I think, you know, to take a moment, uh, there will be hard times, there will be tough times. But a appreciate what I, I call the collateral beauty, which is every good moment is going to mean so much more to you because you're going to appreciate because you've been through the bad and you've been through the dark. And um, so, you know, life, life's a gift um, and, you know, it's a present. So live it. That's my recommendation. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Gabby. And um, Dr. Ramirez, how would you like to share your message? Yes, and I would only add that recognizing that this is an incredibly difficult um, time and a difficult disease, um, that never lose hope. Continue fighting, continue living, continue being inspiring, and continue sharing your story with others. Thank you so very much, Dr. Ramirez and Gabby. This was such a beautiful conversation. I mean, we had, you, you shared so much information, but at the same time, this was a conversation from the heart, which I, I'm absolutely sure will touch all of our audience and followers that will listen and watch. So um, thank you for your time and uh, for this uh, for this wonderful chat, coffee hour chat that we had with you today. And Overcomers, we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep talking about ovarian cancer because you know together we can overcome thank you and bye thank you for joining us make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now this podcast is made possible by our sponsors gsk and clovis oncology and by listeners like you thank you for your support be sure to tune in for our next episode cheers to overcoming